Matthew chapter 25. This week we are wrapping up the Greatest Commission. We have spent the last four weeks, this will be our fifth week, studying three verses of Scripture. And man, is that Scripture packed. It is loaded. Amen? By the way, amen if you're not used to it. Amen means I agree, or right on, or as you have said. So if I ever ask with a question mark, amen, that means do you agree? And if you do, you say amen. And you don't have to wait for me to ask. If you agree with something in it, it strikes you as particularly wonderful, you can say and the Lord will be honored in the process. Yeah. <laughs> On week one when we got together, we talked about Jesus being our absolute authority. In the Greatest Commission, Jesus starts by saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he gives us commission. And remember, this authority tells us two things primarily. Number one, it tells us that he has the right to dictate what happens in my life. If he has all authority, that means he gets to tell me what to do. And secondly, because he has all authority, that means he is able to bestow authority on us. And that's what a commission is. And so he bestows this authority on us, and he bestows it on us in order that we might make disciples. This is the great commission. This is the great purpose of our lives. This is your prime directive, why you are here, to help make disciples. He then qualifies making disciples by using these verbs that augment how that happens. And so the, the first of these verbs that he uses to augment that is by baptizing them. And so we talked about a divine death, how baptism is part of God's plan for us becoming his disciples and making disciples. Last week when we got together, we talked about an obligatory obedience. It is us saying to Jesus, you are in absolute control, therefore I will, I will go ahead and make my life yours. And we're to teach people to obey. It's not just that we're to obey. It's not that we're to teach. It's that we're teaching people to obey. This is how we make disciples. Today we are going to look at a peerless partner. The Great Commission ends interestingly. See, see God's got a plan. He's sovereign. He knows exactly what he's saying. And he gives us this commission, and he finishes it out with a phrase that changes everything. I told you guys I was a geek, right? Let me offer you further evidence. I love Lord of the Rings. Here's how much I love Lord of the Rings. I've read through the book series. I'm on my third time through right now. But beyond the book series, when the movies came out, I was stoked. I was out of my gourd. I went to the openings of every one of those movies, the midnight showing. I saw the first one nine times in theaters. Yeah, is a right response. Good gravy. My wife shares that sentiment. J.R.R. Tolkien, for those of you who don't know, the author of Lord of the Rings, was a phenomenal Christian. He was actually instrumental in the conversion of C.S. Lewis, that great Christian thinker who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, uh, The Abolition of Man, all these major Christian works. Now, if you've read The Lord of the Rings, if you've, if you've watched the movies, you've probably noticed some Christian themes in the midst of there, haven't you? While not as explicit as the Chronicles of Narnia, Lord of the Rings contains major theological elements because J.R.R. Tolkien was a devout Christian and you can't keep the worldview out of what is produced by the worldview. And so you'll see, you'll notice this one particular feature of Lord of the Rings, if you've ever seen it, is that the main character, the protagonist, is sort of this nobody. He's an anybody. He receives a mission, and the whole fate of the world hangs on the mission of this nobody. He might even be described as weak. 
a normal person, an average person, not the great people of the world, but an ordinary person. If you've heard the Great Commission over these past four weeks and felt a bit overwhelmed, you're in good company. Now, there's a chance that you might have heard the Great Commission over the past four weeks and thought, yeah, I know, I got it. I'm afraid if that's the case, that you didn't really hear. This is a mission, and the fate of eternity hangs in the balance. Lives hang in the balance that will be altered for eternity based not on what the minister does, based not on what the elders do, based not on what the children's minister or the worship team does, based on what every one of us does. This is the mission of the entire church, and it takes the entire church. If you've heard that and you felt overwhelmed, you're in good company. If you said to yourself, I'm just a regular anybody, I can't do this, you're in good company. If you felt inadequate, insufficient, ill-prepared, unqualified, unlikely, undeserving, if you feel like God got the wrong person, you're in good company. If you want to hand off this matter to the great people of the world, well, you probably feel like most every believer who has ever existed throughout all of time and history. This is a big project. I'm a little scared by this project. Welcome to the kingdom of God. We're at war. The king has bestowed upon us a mission, a commission. He granted us his authority, and it's terrifying what hangs in the balance. But there's good news. He's going with us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, I want to pray your blessing on this message. And again, Father, we just ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us today. Father, if, if anything, uh, over the past four weeks, if you have intended for any of those things to seat in us and to change how we think and function and act moving forward, God, I pray that your Spirit would make it happen today. Help us to be open to your will, your designs, and your desire. I pray that we would do the hard work of listening and thinking through this and applying it to our lives. Help us to look at ourselves in the mirror of your word. It's in your most precious name we pray, Father. Amen. Well, test time. Pop quiz. Matthew 28. Don't look at it. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Let's see how well you memorized. Let's see if you can beat first service. All right, I'm going to put a couple cues in here just so we stay relatively in the same place. Are you ready? All right, a couple of you. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." pretty good. Pretty okay. Some of you were a bit more courageous than others. Keep working on it. I want to start today by talking about the terrifying mission. Um, I told you there's good news. Jesus is coming with us, but the good news is only good news insofar as you know the bad news. And the bad news is the responsibility, the task that has been laid on us is a very big deal. It is a little terrifying. Remember, our one thing is to make disciples. Let's say that again. Our one thing is to make to be clear, this involves introducing people to Jesus for the first time, but I'm afraid you might think that's all that it involves. It's not. It's not simply bringing somebody to church or introducing them to Jesus. It means taking people who claim to follow Jesus and moving them from a place where they don't really follow him to a place where they do. 
It means perpetually learning and deepening our walks with Jesus Christ. It means showing up in a place and drinking in information and bestowing that information on others. This is a normal part of what it means to be a disciple. It is taking charge of the spiritual lives of those around you and your own life and giving it over to Jesus Christ. It is a perpetual sense of development and it requires the full body of Jesus Christ to accomplish. You. It's going to happen in this room, and it's going to happen in the farmhouse. It's going to happen at the local coffee shop. It's going to happen in your homes. It's going to happen over meals. It's going to happen in hospital waiting rooms. It's going to happen in our offices, in our shops, in our factories. It will happen in the schools. It will happen on purpose, and it will happen completely incidentally. You will be a discipler if you choose to give this part of your life to Jesus Christ. According to God, it is the most important project of your life. So whatever you've been living for, I'm asking you to take God's assessment of you today and I'm asking you to make that primary. Put it in the core of your being. You are, first and foremost, a disciple maker. You need to be part of discovering how you contribute to the project, and that's scary. What if? Some of you, after last week's sermon, came to me and you said, hey, I liked what you said about anxiety. Scripture, please. And some of you contacted me and said, anxiety really hit home with me, so apparently the Lord is speaking to you. Praise God. I'm glad that some of you are hearing this. But even if you don't have anxiety issues, this kind of a weight dropped on you can feel a little anxious. Let me ask the what-if questions. I want to play hypothetical with you, and let's play havoc with your what-ifs. All right, you ready? Here are what-if questions. What if I botch this up? Okay, I'm going to be a disciple maker, but what if I botch this up? What if I mess this up? I'm going to mess people up for eternity. If I say the wrong thing, somebody's going to hell because of me. Have you ever thought that? <laughs> Not till now, Ben. <laughs> oh, no. I don't want to be personally accountable for the downfall of anyone I try to help. I'm like a person who can't swim jumping in to rescue somebody drowning. I'm only going to make this worse. What if? What if I don't know how? What if I don't know how? I don't have enough information yet. There are tens of thousands of questions I cannot yet answer about God. People are going to ask me questions. I'm going to look foolish. I'm going to make Jesus look foolish. I'm going to make Christianity look foolish. I'll drive people away because I just don't know enough. What if? What if they reject me? I'm likely to lose friends. If I take this as seriously as we've talked about over the past several weeks, if I take it that seriously, my non-Christian friends are going to ostracize me. They're not going to want to have anything to do with me. My Christian friends might even think I'm a little weird because maybe I'm taking it too seriously. What if? What if they kill me? Now, this seems like an absurd notion to probably most of us. 20 years ago, I never would have put this in a sermon like this. But the world is changing dramatically. You know, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world are dying today. That's not, that's not a figment of my imagination. Look at the statistics. People are being massacred in Nigeria and in China for serving the cause of Jesus Christ. And if you'd said to me 20 years ago that might happen in this country, I'd be like, I don't think so. But looking around today and the way the culture is running, I wouldn't be surprised. What if you get called to pay that ultimate price? Are you willing? Are you ready? What if? Let's look at Matthew chapter 25. I want to discuss the risk. What's at risk? And I want to look at the parable of the talents. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, 
I am nearly certain you've heard the parable of the talents before. A talent was a unit of money. And so the, the story goes like this. A master, a certain wealthy landowner, a master had servants. And he was going on a long trip. And before he left on that trip, he called his servants in. And to one servant, he gave five talents of money, which was a lot of money. And he said, I'm putting this at your disposal. You have charge of it. To another, he gave two talents. And to another one, he gave one talent, each according to their ability. And you guys are familiar with the story. The master goes on a long trip. And here's what we read. The master leaves, and we read this phrase. And immediately, immediately, the one who had five talents put it to use and made five more. Immediately, the one who had two talents put it to good use and made two more. Immediately, immediately. Notice the master was gone for a long time, but they didn't wait around. They immediately put these things to use. Now, what does this mean? Let's let's talk about what the, the whole thing means before we talk about the one unfaithful servant. So the master is who? Give me God, right? Master is God, and he has charged his servants with going out and doing something, right? So his servants would be us. Now, notice his, his servants are not people who don't believe in the master. They're not people who have nothing to do with the master. They're not people who are the master's enemies. His servants are the people who serve the master. They're there to benefit him. They belong to him, so it would be us. It would be Christians, We are the Christ followers. We're the servants of the master. And what is a talent, you might ask? Well, it's a unit of money, but it's more than a unit of money. Do you know where the term in the English language talent came from? This parable. The reason we call a talent a talent, an ability, is because this parable informed how we think about that. It explains something about ourselves. So a talent is an ability you might have. A talent is faith that you possess. A talent is something put at your disposal that could be used for the kingdom of God. That's what a talent is. So if you've got something that you can use for the discipleship process, you have a talent. Now, what do we do with our talent? It's better not to risk it. Better not to risk that talent. Or is it? Let's look at a few stories of people who risk their talents and what a yield looks like. Now, I want to say this. There is no category of person who invested their talents that did not yield a result. There's no person who went out and said, I'm committing my talents and I lost all my money and now the master has no money left. I think that's intentional. I think it's because God knows that so long as we contribute ourselves to him, that something comes about as a result of it. That there is some eternal thing that is different because we invested Let me tell you what this looks like in some common terms. Let me just give you some illustrations. Long time ago, there was a camp meeting that was taking place. It was a uh, a teenage rally in Chicago. And at that rally, there was an evangelist who was scheduled to speak, but he had a conflict. He wasn't going to be able to make it. And so he contacted the people who were putting on this uh, evangelistic outreach to teenagers. He said, look, I've got a conflict, can't make it. I've got this kid who's just started up. And this kid seems like he's, he's energetic and like, you know, he might be able to speak to the lives of your students. He's a young guy, but I think if you try him, I think you'll like him. His name's Billy Graham. He's 26 years old. Billy Graham goes, and he preaches at this conference with these teenagers. In the aftermath of preaching at this conference with these teens, the older evangelist talked to him, and he said, hey, Billy, how'd you do? And he said, not very good. I mean, I preached my heart out for several days, and by the end of the week, we asked the kids, hey, put up your hands if you've made a commitment to Jesus Christ. 
And there was only one kid in the back who raised his hand and said, I'd like to commit to Jesus Christ. And he was already going to church. He was, he was actually one of the kids who was advertising for the church, but he said that he was going to start taking it seriously at that stage of the game. Now, Billy felt dejected. But here's what we know now. That kid is named Warren Wearsby. For those of you who don't know who Warren Wearsby is, he's one of the most influential Christian thinkers of our age. Some of you might even use a Warren Wearsby commentary. What looked like a failure was a very, very strong success for the kingdom of God. Let me tell you another story about a woman named Susanna. Susanna married a man named Samuel, and he turned out to be sort of a deadbeat. He liked incurring a lot of debts and then not paying them off. Uh, And so he got them into financial trouble time after time. He ended up spending time in prison because, again, he couldn't pay his debts. Susanna recognized her husband was not a stellar leader in their home. And so she decided that she would go ahead and instruct her children where her husband was lacking. And so she threw herself into the project. Now, Susanna had uh, 19 children, 19 children. Before she died, she saw 11 of her children pass. A hard life. They had two house fires where they lost everything. They were constantly in trouble because of debt. And Susanna, through all of it, decided that she was going to be a spiritual leader in her household if her husband wasn't. She took her family to church every week. She educated her children in their home each and every week. You might not have heard of Susanna, but you've heard of her sons probably, Charles and John Wesley. These men are credited with having saved England from moral depravity. Their revivals that they led in the context of England revolutionized really a good portion of Europe in terms of its ability to follow Jesus or fall away. And it's all because one housewife, one mother was faithful in her home to use her talents. Think of your life as a chain. You are a link in a chain. Now, I want you to think for just a moment of who it is that brought you to Christ, who it is that fed into your life in Jesus Christ. That's the link in front of you or the links in front of you. And then think of who it is that fed into their lives. I think, for instance, I think of when I was a kid, uh, I remember Phyllis McDormand and Rosina Hegie, you know, teaching Sunday school back in the day. And here are these women who faithfully would come in with kids picking their nose and, uh, and you know, not paying attention and, and, you know, having their Bibles closed or, you know, snapping people's hands in the Bible, whatever. But week after week, they came in and they fed in the lives of these children over and over and over again. And they probably looked at their lives and they probably thought, I don't even know if I'm making a difference but my life is fed by them. Who in front of you has forged who you are right now? Now, let me ask you this question. If we consider that a chain and it starts running back, where does that chain end? Link by link by link, it goes back to the person of Jesus Christ. You are part of a lineage of faith, past person to person to person, discipleship, development that goes all the way back to Christ and comes to you. And so here's a big question for you concerning our mission, our terrifying mission. Will the chain end at your link? Or are you going to feed into the lives of others? Better not to risk it. This sounds dangerous. Matthew 25, verse 24 and 25. And the one who had received the one talent came up and he said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talents in the ground. See, you have what is yours. 
Look at this guy. He's smart. He didn't risk it. This is what I would call bunker Christianity. You know what a bunker is, right? A bunker is a place you go where when the world is falling apart, you keep yourself safe and yours safe. You're going to stay in there. Everything will be okay for you and yours. The whole rest of the world, excuse the, the phrase, can go to hell. Right? Now, if we're honest, when we think about Christianity in our world right now, this is where most Christians are. The purpose of my life is for me to get my salvation and stay with my salvation and protect it and keep it. And I'm afraid of bumping up against the world out there because this might be tainted and this might fall apart. And what happens if I lose my faith? Then God will be disappointed in me. That's coward talk right there. That is defeatist talk. Are we, are we weak? Do we not know the truth? Do we not have the truth? What are we afraid of? There is only one certain way to fail in the Great Commission, and here it is. It's the one guy who goes, I'm just going to keep safe what you gave me. Let's look at what happens. Verse, chapter 25, verse 26 through 30. But his master answered him and said, You wicked, lazy slave. That sound positive to you? Sound like good managerial style? Pretty upbeat. You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reaped where I did not sow and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in a bank, and upon my rival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Throw that worthless slave into the outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, what does that sound like to you? Hell? Sounds like hell to me too. Does God go, well done, you kept your faith all through this life, well done, you kept your talent secure, it was well hidden, nice job. His response is, no, you deserve hell. The fate of the bunker Christian here seems to be hell. Why? I mean, man, God is harsh. Why would God do this? Can I illustrate why God would do this? If this seems harsh to you, I want you to just envision this for a moment. Imagine you work at a hospital where cancer patients are being treated. Every day you go to work and you see people in their beds laboring to breathe or wasting away with cancer. You see families surrounding their loved ones and grieving and having to watch their suffering day after day as their bodies just fall apart. Imagine you're seeing children being treated with chemo and you're having to watch as these children who don't understand are just undergoing terrible difficulty. Imagine watching that. Get that vision in your head, watching this every day, and then imagine this. You're watching it with a cure to cancer in your pocket. But you don't want to say anything to anybody because, man, that might get weird. They might think... I don't know that I'm insulting it or saying that there's something wrong with the way they're living. And my, my biggest purpose in this life is just to love people. I don't want people to think that I'm criticizing what's going on. What kind of a monster possesses a cure for such a thing and does not seek to give that cure out? Most of the people who want to bury talents. So yes, this is a daunting task. And if we're not going to be monsters in this life, if we're going to go out and do what Jesus said, if we're going to make disciples, then yes, this is terrifying, this is big, it's frightening. But the good news is, 
We're not doing it alone. You see, God's got a name, and he said, this is going to be the name of my Messiah. He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that is not a minor thing. When he says, I'm going to be with you, when he says in Matthew chapter 28, I'm not going to leave you, I'm not going to forsake you, when he says, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, he means it, powerfully means it. This is no minor thing. This is no minor feat. This isn't like, oh, I'm, I'm with you in, in spirit. This isn't Jesus, or a, an individual who says, you'll be in my thoughts. So, what's that matter? This is God saying in a unique way, in a different way than anything you've ever experienced, I am going to be with you from here and forevermore. As you go to carry my commission, I'm there. Let me discuss three ways in which we see Jesus amplifying this in the scriptures. The first way is he describes himself as sort of a navigator and guide. A navigator and guide. Here's what I mean by that. These are his stomping grounds. Job chapter 10, verse 4 through 6. If you guys have read the book of Job, remember Job is having this argument with God. God is unjust and Job is challenging God. God, how can you let this happen to me? I mean, it doesn't seem right. And Job lays what I think is the strongest challenge in the book of Job at the feet of the Lord. Here's what he says in verse, or chapter 10, verse 4 through 6. Is he's challenging God's justice. Have you eyes of flesh? Or do you see as a man sees? Are the days of your days as immortal or your years as a man's years that you should seek my guilt and search after my sin? He's saying to God, do you know what it's like to be me? Do you know what it is to be a human being? And the charge he's laying at God is until you know what that's like, how can you possibly judge me? God answered Job's challenge for all time when he came in the flesh in the person of Christ. He knows exactly what it is like to be you. He knows exactly what it is like to be me. The scripture says that he was made in the likeness of man, that he was tempted like us. Hebrews chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. This is the way the author of Hebrews says it. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to find help in the time of need. Jesus knows what it is to fear. He experienced that. He knows what it is to experience loneliness. He knows what stress is. He knows what it is to be misunderstood. He knows what it is to be betrayed, even betrayed by dear friends. Jesus knows what it is to experience rejection. Jesus knows what it's like to be hated for doing what is right. He knows. Last week, we discussed Jesus uh, making space for us, or making space for Jesus by our obedience, for him to dwell in us. Jesus returns the favor. Not only is he the one who knows the stomping grounds, the one who has been here and showing us the path, but he's also the one who's making a home for us. He's going ahead. It's a scouting mission. John 14, 1 through 3. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. It's not just that he's he's identifying with us, but he's saying, watch the way I walk, follow me through this life, and I'll tell you where we're headed. I'm going to be there. Not only is he going to be there, not only is he preparing the, the place, 
but he says that he is the way. John chapter 14, 4 through 6 says it this way. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas, you got to love Thomas in the, in the Gospels. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How would we possibly know the way? Jesus says to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Nobody comes through the Father but through me. So he is our navigator in a sense. He knows the stomping grounds. He has showed us the path. He has gone ahead to prepare a place for us. And he himself is the way by which we get there. He's more than just the navigator. He is the master and rabbi. You guys might have heard me praying periodically and you'll hear me address God as master sometimes. And this is the reason. I love the concept of Jesus as master. For me, it puts me in a position where I'm thinking I'm submitting to you. You teach me. You tell me what to do. We've kind of lost as a culture the idea of master and apprentice. This, for most of human history, everybody understood the relationship between master and apprentice. The master is the expert. He's the one who knows how to do everything. He knows how to do it well. The apprentice is the one who comes alongside him, and the master pours his life into the apprentice, and the apprentice, little by little, increases in knowledge and understanding and ability and skill. And eventually, the apprentice becomes the journeyman and then the master. This is the plan for how somebody is developed in a trade. This is how our master works. Have you ever built Legos with your kids? Fathers, have you had this experience? I, uh, four years old, Aiden and I were building Legos. And, uh, and when your son asks you to build a tower, it's like, okay, let's do it. And you, you sit down next to him. And he starts just, you know, block on block. And you're going, oh, no. Foundation, foundation symmetry. And, it, and it's immediately frustrating because you know I can do this way better than him. Is there any question that you can build a Lego tower better than your four-year-old? Is there any question that you could do it better? No, of course you can do it better, right? But that's not the point. Elbowing your son out of the way and going, let me show you how to do it. And then doing it yourself. That is not part of the teaching process. He has to do it. He has to be, or she has to do it. They have to begin developing this on their own. And part of what the the strategy is, let them fail. Let them try. Let them get their hands in the middle of things. And if you don't do that, they will never learn how to get it done. Jesus is our master. He does not fail at letting us get our hands dirty. Even when he sees us messing things up, he's right there with us alongside us going, try it next time this way, buddy. Or come back. Let's go back to the shop a little bit. I want to show you what we're all about again. Jesus is the good master, and we are his apprentices. Jesus trains on the job. Jesus engages in ongoing training. You can always go back for a little bit more. And Jesus is intent on making you a master. Jesus is not just a master. He's not just the navigator, but he's also described himself as the shepherd, the good shepherd. God is all-knowing. Is that correct? God is all-knowing, is that correct? Yeah, okay. Um, God is sovereign, that means God's in complete control. Is that correct? Here's what this means. When our God decided he was going to forge a universe, and he went, I'm going to compose this, and I choose to make humanity, he also decided, hmm, I'm going to have to give them some teaching tools. I'm going to have to show them what it's like to relate to me. Let's create an animal for that. And in God's mind, he went, I'll develop the perfect animal for telling human beings what they're like. Sheep. 
Now, that may seem like an insult, but God, and again, if you recognize that God is all, all sovereign, that God, that God has absolute power, that he's all-knowing, that's what that means. He forged this universe with us in mind, and things like sheep are part of how he tells us about ourselves. Well, there are tons of ways in which humans are like sheep, but the one I want to emphasize right now is this. Sheep do not do well at taking care of themselves. If a sheep is left to its own devices, it's like a, a wandering buffet for predators. If a sheep is left to its own devices, its wool will grow so thick that the thing can't move. Sheep require shepherding. They require somebody to care for them. And who cares for us? Jesus describes himself in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd. And he says, let me tell you how much I love you. Let me tell you what I'm like. I'm not just going to lead you into good pastures. I'm not just going to care for you as David talks about in the Psalms. But he says, I'm the shepherd. I'm the kind of shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In Luke chapter 15, it says, not only does he love the sheep, not only is, is he willing to lay down his life for the sheep, but he leaves the 99 on the hill. This is an awesome passage where Pharisees and scribes, they grumble against Jesus. And they're so angry because they're like, this guy, this guy dines with sinners. They're mad. You know, sinners. Like us. That's the kind of shepherd we follow. Not only that, but he goes on to tell him, he goes, look, if you lose a sheep, aren't you going to leave the 99 on the hill and go search for that one? And find it and pick it up and put it on your shoulders and carry it back. This is the kind of shepherd we have. The kind of shepherd who when we wander away and do the wrong things goes, I'm finding them. I'm going after them. That's his desire to seek us, even in the midst of our sin and depravity. That's the kind of shepherd we have. This is the one who says, I'm going with you. Let's discuss our last verb participle. So we know what our terrifying mission is. We understand that we have a peerless partner, that Jesus is going with us. But there's one verb participle I haven't mentioned to you yet. One other thing that augments how we make disciples, and that is going. The term go in the Great Commission is a participle that augments making disciples. It's telling us that in order to make disciples, you've got to go. You've got to do something. There's this great uh, feature of the Old Testament where... Uh, we're kind of instructed, if, if God's not going with you, you don't go. If God's not with you, be afraid of wherever you're going because you're in trouble. So think of Moses, for instance, when he, he leads the, the uh, Israelites across the Red Sea. And they go to Mount Sinai and they get the law from God and they march up to the edge of Canaan. They're right at the edge of Canaan. God says, I am going before you. I'm going to deliver this people into your hands. This place is yours. And the Israelites are like, yeah, let's send some spies in to see what it's like. And they send in 12 spies. And the spies come back and they're like, well, the land's pretty good. But there are giants in there and their cities are fortified and this is terrifying. We're going to die. And so all the people say, we don't believe you, God. We're not going. And God goes, you're right, you're not going. In fact, turn around. You're going to go into the wilderness and you're going to wander for 40 years until all of you men of fighting age are dead. And the Israelites go, oh, didn't know that was plan B. Turns out we're ready to go fight the people of the land now. And you know what Moses says? He says, God says, go ahead. You'll die. And the people went ahead and the people were slaughtered and sent running into the Sinai wilderness. Why? Because if God's not going, you don't go. But Jesus reverses this in this text. He says, I'm going with you. 
You don't have to worry about following me. I'm coming alongside. Wherever you're going, I'm going to be there. As a Christian, you never, ever, ever, ever have to be alone. And if he's going with me, what's there to fear? Open up your Bibles to Isaiah 41. In Isaiah 41, we're given a command. Now, the, the book of Isaiah is written by the prophet Isaiah. It's written to the people of Israel. And you and I as Christians have been grafted into Israel. That means we are now part of Israel. But explicitly in this text, we are included in the people of Israel. How? Isaiah didn't even know about us. Well, Isaiah was a prophet, and he spoke from the Lord. Isaiah is going to give a command in this text, and here's what he says, do not fear. That's the command. When he says do not fear, I want you to underline it, and then he's going to give us reasons that we ought not fear. You ready? Chapter 41, verse 9 through 13. You, whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts. That's us. And said to you, you are my servant. You know, like the kind that you give talents to. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Listen, do not fear. Don't be afraid. For I am, listen, he's going to give reasons. For I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. For I am your God. There's your second reason. I will strengthen you. There's your third reason. Surely I will help you. That's your fourth reason. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, uh, you guys pause here just a second. Have you ever looked around at the world and gone, this place is nuts. These people hate us. This world is terrible. And, and you're like, I'm afraid to say anything to these people. These people have me shaking in my boots. Everything is awful out there. Look at what he says to us here. Take heart from this. If you have anxiety, take comfort from this text. Verse 11, Behold, all those who are angered at you will be shamed and dishonored. Those who contend with you will be as nothing and will perish. You will seek those who quarrel with you, but you will not find them. Those who war against you will be as nothing and non-existence. For I am the Lord your God who upholds or who keeps hold of your right hand. Here's God's description to us. Don't be afraid. I'm right here. I'm with you. I'm strengthening you. I'm lifting you up. I'm hanging on to you. I'm dragging you along. You're mine. My dad can beat up your dad. You probably said that phrase at some point in your life. It is so true for us as believers. My dad can beat up your dad. I want you to put yourself in the elementary school mindset for just a moment. Remember what it was like to be in elementary school and remember what it's like to confront a bully. I don't know if any of you have had that experience or not, but I just want you to visualize being in that condition. I have to go to school tomorrow and this bully, this big kid, this big boy or girl hates me and ridicules me and makes fun of me and makes me cry in front of other kids. This kid tortures me and torments me and trips me and looks for every opportunity to treat me ill, and I have to go to confront that kid tomorrow. Feel how that feels? Now imagine this. Tomorrow, the entire U.S. military will be poised to strike this child. I just want you to visualize. You're going to go confront this kid, and as you do so, all these Abram tanks are standing there. They're cannons leveled at this kid. 
You've got every American aircraft in the world that is laser sights focused in, laser-guided missiles coming in at this child on a moment's notice. You have every armed ship in the United States Navy ready to do the same. Every soldier in the United States military has a gun and they're pointing it at that kid. Are you feeling a little more bold? The American military has nothing on our God. I want us to, as we close out here, I want us to re-envision our initial concerns about carrying on this mission and carrying this message. What if I botch this up? I have a navigator and he is showing me the way. He knows my weaknesses. He knows my failures and my flaws and he is blazing a path. He's got good works that he has prepared in advance for me to do. What if I don't know how? I have a master and I am his apprentice. He knows everything about how. And he's decided that he's going to train me and take me on. He's going to teach me everything I know in order to make disciples. If I watch, if I try, if I invest my talents, I will become like him. What if they reject me? Many will. They certainly will. He told me as much. He said it would be that way. But he is the shepherd and I follow the shepherd. It's not my job to make wolves into sheep. My job is to follow the shepherd where he leads, eat what he takes me to, drink what he takes me to, and let him care for me. What if they kill me? I know what comes next. The very worst thing that can happen to me is something that the Apostle Paul described as an improvement. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain. It gets better. I have already lost my life. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you've already laid it down and said, this belongs to you. Let me ask you a question. Do you trust Jesus to spend your life wisely? Even if we have to die. Let me close out with this. God has a sense of humor. And the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 1 starts out, with the narrative as it ends with Jesus. He's given them the Great Commission, and he reiterates it here in this chapter. He says, look, I'm sending you out. I want you to go to Jerusalem, and you wait for me. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to go to Jerusalem, and then to Judea, the larger area, and then to, to the rest of the world, to the ends of the earth, and you're going to teach them to obey all I've commanded. You're going to take my gospel to these people. And the disciples are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then something weird happens that I like to call the launching of the Lord. Jesus begins to ascend into the sky. Now, it's kind of a weird scenario. Why would he do this? Well, because Jesus has been teleporting over and over again. Literally, in the text, we see that Jesus pops into a place, and he's just there, and he talks to people, and then he disappears, and he's gone, and he's somewhere else. He appears on a beach. He appears in a room with doors closed and locked. This is how Jesus is operating. And so if Jesus just disappears from their midst again, they're probably like, we'll be back. So he's got to give them some sense of closure. He begins to take off and ascend into the sky. And as he ascends into the sky, the disciples are just sitting there doing what you and I would do. They're just slack-jawed, looking up in the air going, now Jesus has told them, I'm coming back in the same way you see me leave. So we're not told how long they stand there, but we are told it takes an angelic intervention to stop them from standing there. So they're standing there waiting. He's coming back in the same way. They're probably like, okay, I know gravity works basically. This has to end sometime. And they just stand and stand. And eventually two angels are there and they're like, men of Galilee, what are you doing? Head back into Jerusalem like he told you. Move, go, go wait. I have this fear that when we hear the Great Commission that some of us are in a condition where we're going, 
okay, 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 I'm willing. What do I do? What comes next? And like the disciples, we're just standing there slack-jawed and we're going, what happens? Um, Guys, three weeks from today, three weeks from today, we're going to have a church meeting like we've never had before. In this church meeting, here's what's going to happen. We're going to gather together and we are, it's, it's going to be a think tank. This is a whole body think tank. We're going to discuss what happens with this church for the next decade. So we're going to project, we're, we're not, we are. We want your input. We want for you guys to tell us what it ministries that you are passionate about, fired up about. We are going to create our ministry uh, schema and project beginning on that week. And so I'm asking for everybody to come, be juiced up on coffee and ready to go, full of ideas, out-of-the-box thinking. When we gather together, we're going to plan out how we all plug into ministry. It's my desire, it's our desire that everybody in this church goes, I am the person at this church who does, and then you have something. Amen? (laughs) Not a resounding amen on that. Amen? Amen? Guys, there is nothing that feels so good as having a place you're plugging in and going, I am part of the discipleship project. Many of you have been in the church for years and you've been in a situation where you just feel a little bit empty and like you're not quite doing something right because you're not quite doing something right. There is an opportunity for each and every one of us to put our hand to the plow and do something for the kingdom of God. Let's join in that. We've heard the words of our master. We have a great commission. Our absolute authority has given us a mandatory mission. He's called us to a divine death. He's called us to an obligatory obedience and to teach that obligatory obedience. He's promised to be our peerless partner as we go. No matter where you've been in your Christian walk, we've heard the word, we've heard the commission. Are you ready? It's time. The game is afoot. Life can be different for you from here on out. Your mission in this life can be different. The feeling of this life can be different. You can know who you are tomorrow, the next day, and through eternity. And it begins now. Let's go to our master in prayer. Lord, I pray that you would offer conviction to each and every one of us. God, I pray again that, Father, this church body is willing to step up and say, hey, if you're going with us, we will go. If you're leading, if you're governing, if you're teaching, if you're training, if you're shepherding, we are yours and we go forth with you and your authority. God, we know that if we are to make this something successful, that it has to be of you. So Lord Jesus, we're asking that you would be in the midst of everything this church body does. If we do it alone, we know it fails. But if we, if we have you right in the thick of it, God, we know it succeeds. I pray your blessing on this, our body of believers. Lead us. Direct us, be with us, Lord Jesus. Amen.